welcome. You're listening to a sermon podcast from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. I'm going to throw my two cents in on a couple things before we get going. One is the luncheon next Sunday, Tachi and Wellington used to be in Brazil, and I had a chance a number of years ago to go and hang out with them for about eight or nine days, and uh, they are wonderful, beautiful people with hearts for serving God, and they are now in Mozambique, and it is really good for us to uh, have it when we have the opportunity to go hear what God is doing around the world. It's good for us individually. It's good for us as a church to get a chance to see that God is not localized in one place, and he's doing things all over the world, and it's good to go and expose ourselves to that and to hear from them. And the work they're doing, and even more than that, who they are, is just a joy to be around. So I encourage you uh, next Sunday after the service to go to that and be part of that. And then I want to say a word about our friends at Lakeside. Uh, Brad has been there for 212 years or something like that, but he's been there a long time. And a few years before I got to Folsom, he came, and I I got to meet him early on, and then Over the last five, six years, I've gotten to know him uh, a lot more through our pastor's prayer times together and just having time one-on-one with him. We've had a few opportunities where we've golfed together. We're going to do that again this week with some other pastors in town. But I just want to say a word that for all these years when I've interacted with Brad, when I've watched him from a distance, when he and I have shared with each other, he is a supreme example of a servant of God who has served for a long, long time and has served extremely well. And I just want you to know that we have a church in Lakeside that we are friends with. We are in the work of the kingdom together. Brad is an amazing human being. He combines incredible leadership with deep humility. And some of the conversations I've had, his humility is just raw. I've watched him over the years be responsive to things that God is doing, teaching him, and the way that that's shaped and reshaped him. So if you have friends who are part of Lakeside, or if otherwise you have a voice that over there, it would be a good time to bring encouragement to them. To I've met the pastor that's coming in. I'm confident that he will do an amazing job as well. But it is a good thing to see Uh, a pastor, be there for so long, be in the same community, immerse himself in the lives of his people, and now finish well. So I'm very glad for him and very glad for Lakeside. So with that, if you would stand for our scripture reading, where I'm going to be reading three verses from John chapter 15. Actually, it's on the screen, the whole thing, so you don't have to turn to it if you don't want to. Well, I'll just read it uh, right from there. This is Jesus talking just before, actually on the Thursday of Holy Week. So he's the day before he's going to go through his sufferings. As the Father has loved me, he says to his disciples, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. These words of Jesus are the basis for this new series that we're starting today. We will come back to them over and over again, not only today, but throughout this series, 
because there's such rich things in there that kind of set the overarching stage for this series that we're starting today. Back in mid-July, I asked two of my adult children this question. From your perspective as a 25 to 30-year-old, what sermon series, I had to qualify it by saying, if any, would you want to hear, or do you think your friends would want to hear, to help navigate the chaos and confusion of these times in which we are now living? And both of them had really good answers, but I was particularly struck by Izzy's answer. And she said in response, words to this effect, with all the violence and chaos and confusion, how does a person find happiness and hang on to it when the world seems so out of control? I was struck by the longing expressed in her question, a longing undoubtedly for a better world a longing for goodness to, at least once in a while, prevail. A longing, in just base terms, a longing to be happy. And I know Izzy isn't the only one asking uh, this kind of question these days. Her question, at least it seems to me, stirs in a growing number of us. And her question is the reason for this series we're calling Choose Joy. How do we find happiness and hang on to it in a world where hardship and heaviness and violence and trouble seem so relentless and so unstoppable. Well, over the next five weeks, our answer is choose joy. In this series, we're going to talk about five specific and really practical ways we can choose joy through the moments of our day. And that is a key phrase. We can choose joy in the details and through the moments of a given typical day, no matter our circumstances. Now, the bottom line answer to Izzy's question just might be happiness, at least the way we typically think of the word, may not be possible in this broken world. Because typical happiness, as I'm sure you know, is often, if not usually, dependent upon circumstances. So when our circumstances are good, we are happy, and when they're not, we aren't. But life, as we know, is a roller coaster of circumstances. There are steep hills, and then there's long valleys we rumble down into, and then there's sharp turns that are unexpected and sort of whip us around. And happiness is hard to hold on to when it is connected to our circumstances. But regardless of our circumstances, we can choose joy. And joy is different than happiness. Joy is deeper than happiness. Joy certainly includes happiness, but it's bigger. See, Christian joy is a pervasive and constant sense of well-being. I just want that to sit on us for a second. Because we can immediately think of, yeah, but I'm in this battle right here, and I've got that struggle right there, and this is falling apart, and that's not going well. At least from a Christian standpoint, Christian joy is a pervasive and constant sense of well-being, meaning it pervades our thoughts, our feelings, our attitudes, and even these bodies that we have. This joy, in other words, pervades our entire being. This sense of well-being pervades throughout us. And 
it is constant, meaning it does not change when life's roller coaster twists, twists and turns. And David is speaking of this kind of joy when he says, for example, in Psalm 16, Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure. And you can see the pervasive well-being He's talking about David is saying when he is oriented toward God and when he is in step with God, nothing can move him, nothing can rattle him, and nothing can rob him of this pervasive and constant sense of well-being. And that kind of unshakable gladness and joy is, I think, what we all long for. Similarly, in John chapter 15, our scripture reading for the day, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and this is an important detail, on the Thursday night before his crucifixion. So Jesus, if you will, is inching up the roller coaster track of his life, going up this very steep hill, and it's about to crest over the top and run downhill really fast in the most horrifying way. And he knows all of this. But even so, the night before it occurs, he says to his disciples, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. There's the phrase. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. See, Jesus is answering Izzy's question. As we remain in God's love by orienting toward him and doing what he says, his joy will be in us and our joy will be complete. Think about that. His joy, my joy will be in you and your joy will be complete. God's joy, that is, joy that is the result of God's Spirit actually at work within us, that joy will be in us, and our joy that tends to depend on our circumstances will be whole, and it will be complete. Or to put it this way, our joy will sustain even when life is chaotic and confusing and shattering. So often our happiness is hitched to the trailer of our circumstances. And when they go south, we go south. But what Jesus is emphasizing here is that joy depends on God, not on circumstances. Jesus is telling us that the joy he had, even during awful and terrifying circumstances on the brink of Good Friday and crucifixion, that that joy will be ours if we learn to orient our lives around him and remain, abide in his love, stay in step with him, and do what he says. Now, I don't know about you, but it's hard to wrap my head around this. And it's right here with a topic like this. Those of you who've been here a while, you'll, you know probably what's coming. But it's right here with a topic like this, a topic like joy, where everything in me resists overcooked 
religiosity and prefabricated religious slogans that sound real good on a bumper sticker but offer little comfort in the emergency room. And I have to keep asking the question of this concept. Is this kind of joy real or is it fake? Is joy the punchline of the naive who live with their heads in the sand and polish up the scuff marks of life with cute religious slogans? Or is joy possible even in the face of a broken and difficult world or set of circumstances? Well, Jesus seems to think his joy can be your joy. His joy can be our joy, and our joy can then be complete. So I say we go with him on this one and choose joy. So each week of this series, we're going to explore a specific way to choose joy in the moments of our lives. And this week, we're talking about noticing instead of hurrying. Paying attention and being on the lookout for the good gifts God scatters all over his world and throughout our lives. Slowing down and paying attention is essential to experiencing joy. Let's talk about the cost of hurry. In the summer of 1999, I was taking a class with a professor, and I don't know what else to call him except he was a soul expert. His insights into the workings of the human soul linger in me to this day. They absolutely shaped, reshaped, and rerouted me. And on the first day of this two-week class, one of the first things he said was, and I quote here, I would hope coming out of these two weeks of class, you will never be in a hurry again. I failed last count a million times to follow his advice, but I've never forgotten his advice. He said it with an urgency that we might have when we tell our kids not to steal. And up until then, I'd never really thought that much about hurry. It seemed kind of unavoidable in today's chaotic world. You have a job, you got kids at that time for us, life gets packed in, schedule gets packed, you're going to hurry. It just seemed unavoidable, and it seemed benign to me. No big deal. But as this teacher elaborated on hurry's effects on the human soul, I became convinced that perpetual hurry and busyness make sustained joy impossible. Or to put it back in the framework of this series. The answer to Izzy's question is, I don't know the answer, but I do know this. If you're hurried and busy all the time, you will never experience happiness or joy. Sustained. Now, like most things, there's more going on with hurry that, than meets the eye. Hurry is certainly the presenting issue. That's what we see. But there are other malformities brewing beneath the surface. We're not in a hurry because we have a busy schedule or not enough time. We are not in a hurry because we have a busy schedule or because there's not enough time. Because there are people with busy, busier schedules than ours and less time than we have who aren't in a hurry. So it's possible. See, just like we can choose joy, we can choose hurry. And some of us do just that. Some of us choose hurry because being in a hurry makes us feel important. Or it makes us look important. There's some kind of kickback to hurry. And we want the kickback. You know how it goes. Hey, how's life going? Great. I'm super busy. 
but it's great. Makes us feel like we matter. Makes us feel like we're important. How's life? Great. People need things from me. I got tons of appointments and tons of meetings. And if I don't come through, the axis of the planet will snap in half. But it's great. There's a kickback. So we choose hurry and busyness. John Comer writes this in his book on hurry. It's on the screen. He says, we hear the refrain, I'm great, just busy. So often, we assume pathological busyness is okay. After all, everybody else is busy too, but what if busyness isn't healthy? What if it's an airborne contagion wreaking havoc on our collective soul? Love, joy, and peace are at the heart of all Jesus is trying to grow in the soil of your life, and all three are incompatible with hurry. Joy is incompatible with hurry. There's a high cost to hurry. It's not neutral. It stretches us thin. It makes us feel like our lives are out of control. It keeps us preoccupied and distracted. It fuels stress. It clutters up our interior lives. It backlogs our emotions. At least for a while, it makes joy impossible. So when we live at high speed, always on the go, another appointment to keep, task to accomplish, project to finish, leaving late and rushing to arrive on time or late, Thinking fast, eating fast, walking fast, talking fast. When we live like this, real, authentic, sustained joy is impossible. We moved to California in 1995, a long time ago. And in the early part of 1997, two of our kids were toddlers, Sam and Abby, and Izzy wasn't even on location yet. One day we were driving a couple to the Reno airport for their flight back to Milwaukee, and this couple had been with us for a week interviewing for a job at a church we were trying to start out in the Rockland area, and it was a hectic week. Many appointments, many long and involved conversations that went late into the night, visitors in our house for a whole week. Sam and Abby didn't get much time with us. They had babysitters throughout the week. They heard us bark, hurry up. Many times that week, they didn't sleep well. They wondered where we were. You get the picture. After we left the Reno airport, we went to McDonald's for lunch and tried bribing the kids with a Happy Meal before driving all the way home. Sam wanted the little green monster figurine in his Happy Meal, but when I asked for it, they didn't have any of those left. So we had to settle for Bugs Bunny doing a slam dunk with a basketball. And for the next 20 minutes... Sam sobbed because he couldn't get the little green monster. The world is broken. There aren't enough green monsters in all the Happy Meal. He was so upset that I finally left the restaurant and took him out to our van. And I knew that this, uh, he was not this upset over a Happy Meal figurine. There was something bigger fueling this meltdown. Sam was the first grandchild in our family, and my dad loved him from the start, and Sam loved my dad. They had this unique and special bond back in Wisconsin, and when we moved here, both dad, my dad and Sam felt the sting of separation. Well, as Sam and I were in the van, and he continued to scream, and he continued to cry, at one point, I opened my arms to him like this, and I said, come here, buddy. 
And he scrambled over to me as fast as he could, and he just buried his head in my shoulder, and sobbing, he just started screaming, I miss my papa. I miss my papa. He was tired, stressed from an overdose of activity and busyness, and the exterior of his world had cluttered up his interior. And when he reached capacity, he lost it. And I would suggest to you, this is what hurry and busyness gradually do to us. And it happens to all of us, whether we pay attention to it or not. Over hurry and over busy turns a missing green monster into us being a monster. The green monster comes out in us in a meltdown of one sort or another. So I just want to drive this home. It's impossible to experience joy and taste the goodness of God in the everyday course of our lives when we're constantly hurried. Let's talk about the power then of noticing. Children are not born with the instinct to hurry up. Think about that. They're inclined to take their time. Goof around, laugh, feed their curiosity, wander without an agenda, pick little treasures up off the ground and revel in them, eat them. <laughs> and this is the kind of thing that sometimes frustrates us adults because we got places to go. We got obligations to fulfill. So we bark at our kids to hurry up. Now think about that in light of what we've been talking about. We are urging them to hurry. We're urging them, in other words, to do something that many wise spiritual people would say is harmful to their souls. Maybe that sounds exaggerated, but is it exaggerated? Again, John Comer's words, what if busyness isn't healthy? What if it's an airborne contagion wreaking havoc on our collective soul? Love, joy, and peace are at the heart of all Jesus is trying to grow in the soil of your life, and all three are incompatible with hurry. So we are wise, I think, to think of hurry up the same way we would think of barking at our kids to steal gum or cheat on a test. See, for most of us to choose joy in the everyday moments, and this is really hard, but for most of us to choose joy in the everyday moments, we have to relearn the way and posture of a child. Instead of hurrying up, we have to regularly choose to live at what one author calls, and I love this phrase, a savoring pace. So imagine an entire Monday tomorrow filled with all the obligations of every other Monday. But the day begins with an intentional choice to live the whole day at a savoring pace. Slower. More thoughtfully. And throughout the day, paying attention and noticing the goodness of God and the abundance of his gifts scattered in unlikely places. This has nothing to do with our schedule or how much time we have. Our schedule might be full, our time is probably limited, but we choose to slow down and slow down 
and slow down and pay attention and notice the goodness of God and the abundance of his gifts scattered in unlikely places. I missed an appointment the other day. I was supposed to be there at a certain time. I showed up an hour later because I had the wrong time in my head. The person I was going to meet at this place had already left. Oh, wretched man am I. So I sat there. My instinct first was, I'll just go. I thought, I'm going to just sit here. Thursday night football was on. So I sat there and I watched part of a football game. And right next to me was an older couple in this booth. And they were there having dinner. I wasn't really eavesdropping. I was doing research. (laughs) For this message. But I got to tell you, it was absolutely joy-filling to hear this conversation. The shrimp was outstanding. The chips never had better, have you? His blood work, clean as a whistle. (laughs) And maybe my favorite, that last bite, no, honey, you take it. Right there, having slowed all of a sudden, scattered in an unlikely place, some good gift and some of God's goodness just right in front of me. And I could see it and I could hear it and it brought joy to my heart. Jesus knew the importance of slowing down. We don't often think of him like this, but Jesus was often busy. His schedule was full. When word got out what he could do, There were long lines pounding on the door. Give me five minutes with him. But many times in the Gospels, he wanders into the wilderness or up a mountain to be alone with God. And sometimes he does this when there's a long line of people knocking on the door saying, give me five minutes with him. And they go, sure, just a second. And they turn around and Jesus is gone. And then they find him out in a field somewhere. He did this regularly, slowing down for prayer and quiet. And here's the thing, the joy Jesus had, John 15, my joy, that joy, even in the face of the world's hardship and pain and his own imminent suffering was nurtured in those times of slowing down and being with God. Many times as well, Jesus gathered with his friends away from all the crowds. Mark 6 and verse 31, then because so many people were coming and going, that the disciples did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. Let's get away from the noise. Let's get away from all the obligations. All the to-dos are not completed. All the needs have not been met. But let's go rest. Let's go play. Let's go abide in the love of God together. Joy is nurtured and sustained by slowing down and noticing. Thomas Keating, a Roman Catholic teacher, reminds us this beautiful statement. It only takes a moment for God to enrich you. Think about that in the course of a Monday. Boom, 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 boom. And it only takes a moment, a pause, a deep breath, a reorienting 
for God to enrich you. Psalm 23, familiar psalm. Psalm 23 is about noticing. David the shepherd, out in a field, alone, paying attention, noticing. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in these green pastures. He leads me beside, it's right there, quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along right paths for his namesake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they are what comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Harsh world, dark world, violent world, confusing world, chaotic world, joy-stealing world. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever, slowing down and noticing God's goodness and love that is following us on a Monday. So let me recommend one practical way to slow down and notice. There's a hundred. You don't need this, but I want to give you an example, just a a really practical, down-to-earth, kind of a silly, if not dumb, example. But It'll put feet to this. It makes it really practical, which we want to do throughout this series. Here's what I'd like to ask you to do. Pick your favorite store. Costco, if that happens to be yours. Sprouts, now that's a good store. Home Depot, maybe. Michael's, I don't know how you do it, but if that's your thing. Ace Hardware up in El Dorado Hills. That's a leading candidate. There you go. And here's what I'd like to ask you to do. Go to that store at a time when it's really busy, middle of the day, whatever it is, and go when you don't need anything. And go with a commitment to walk through the entire store, every aisle, at a savoring pace, which means slow everything down. So I'm going to be more specific. Drive slow to the store. This is going to mess with some of you. Park way far away. None of this loop. No, there's none up there. Loop. No, there's not one there. Loop. Just go way out there and park. Then stroll through the parking lot like you don't have a care in the world toward the store. Once you're in, wander the aisles. Browse with zero intent to buy. Pray as you stroll. And here's the key thing. Look and listen for signs and displays of God's goodness and love and abundant gifts. Now, where to look, you might wonder. Where should I look for those things? If there's children, look at the children. If there are elderly, look at the elderly. If there are dogs, look at the dog. And look at the employees. And just let yourself interpret 
the inner world of that employee at that time. Or maybe put it this way, look for small details that appear to mean nothing. And see, as you're in kind of a prayerful, savoring pace with all this, see if God's Spirit speaks to you through those nothings. Or simply speaks to you as you're in that savoring pace. Look for the good. Listen for the good. And who knows, you might even see an opportunity. I suspect you will. You will see an opportunity to do something or say something. Do something for someone or say something to someone that will bless them and show them the way of the kingdom and perhaps bring joy to them through your presence. Well, for the next several weeks, we're going to stare into the face of hardship and struggle and a broken and divided world. We're going to do this together. We're going to look right at it without pretending, without being fake. And we're going to say, yes, but even so, because of what our king says, we're going to choose joy. We are going to do the work so that his joy can be in us. And as his joy is in us and we learn to live in it, our joy will become complete. Would you pray with me? So, Heavenly Father, we rejoice today because we ponder your greatness, your goodness. We ponder that you are the good shepherd. And because you are a good shepherd who is with us, it is true. We lack nothing. Green pastures to rest in. Quiet waters to stroll by and drink from. Tables set right in the presence of our enemies. Dark valleys that become light because you are with us. And my prayer is that as we choose joy for these weeks, that it will instill something in us that will launch us on a transformational change for the rest of our lives as we choose joy, that we will learn that you and your kingdom encompass all that is happening in this chaotic world. That through it all and beyond it all and above it all, you are the king and you are good and you are at work and you have gifts that you're depositing in unlikely places all around our lives and throughout this broken and divided world. Give us eyes that can see the goodness, ears that can hear it, and hearts that can receive it and rejoice over it. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.